Section 56 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 15, Philip and Mary, by James Bass Mullinger, Part 3. On November 20, Pole landed at Dover, and proceeded thence by Canterbury and Rochester to Gravesend. Here he was presented with two documents, which finally cleared away all impediments from his path. The first, an act of Parliament passed ten days before, reversing his attainder. The second, letters patent brought by the Bishop of Durham, empowering him to exercise without restraint his functions as legate. His progress from Gravesend to Whitehall, accordingly, resembled a triumphal procession, and on his arrival in the capital he was greeted with special honour by Philip and Mary. Writs, in which the title of Supreme Head was discarded, were forthwith issued for a third Parliament to meet on November 12, and on the 27th the legate delivered before the assembled members a declaration couched in highly figurative language explanatory of the circumstances under which he had been sent of the object of his coming and of the powers with which he had been invested at the conclusion of his address he was formally thanked by gardiner and after he had quitted the assembly the chancellor declared that he had spoken as one inspired on the following day the question was put to both houses whether england should return to the obedience of the apostolic see the affirmative was carried without a dissentient among the peers and with but two in the commons on st andrew's day pole on bended knee before mary presented her with the supplication of the two houses quote, that they might receive absolution and be readmitted into the body of the holy catholic church under the pope the supreme head thereof end quote. After further formalities, the intercession made by king and queen on behalf of the houses, Pole pronounced the absolution, and received the petitioners, by his authority as legate, quote, again, into the unity of our mother, the Holy Church, end quote. The legislation of the two preceding reigns in all that related to the authority of the Roman see was now rescinded, and on Advent Sunday, gardiner at paul's cross in the presence of the king and the legate called upon the nation to rouse itself from the slumbers and delusions of the past years and to return to the true fold while he himself at the same time abjured the doctrine set forth in his de vera obedientia and declared his unreserved submission to the papal power another supplication and one of very different tenor now issued from within those prison walls where the chief leaders of the reformers were confined it detailed the hardships to which they were subjected claimed that the accusations brought against them should be distinctly stated in order that they might be heard in their own defence and since it was as heretics that they had been singled out for imprisonment they urged that quote, heresy should be legally defined 
Parliament's response to this appeal was the reenactment of three ancient statutes formerly in force against lollardism. The measure passed rapidly through both houses, the only opposition which it encountered proceeding from the lords, where some objection was urged to the restoration of the old episcopal jurisdiction, while the penalties enacted were pronounced excessive. As the result of this legislation, John Rogers, the proto-martyr of the reign, died at the stake in the following February, and a series of like tragical scenes followed, in which the sufferings of the martyrs and the fortitude with which they were endured combined to produce a widespread impression. So marked, indeed, was the popular sympathy that Reynard felt bound to suggest to Philip the employment of less extreme measures, quote, otherwise the heretics would take occasion to assert that the means employed by the church to bring back perverts to the fold were not teaching and example, but cruel punishments, end quote. He further advised that Pole should, from time to time, have audience of the council and be consulted by them with regard to the penalties to be enforced. Unfortunately, neither Gardiner nor Pole was inclined from previous experience to advocate a lenient course. The former was especially anxious to give proof of the sincerity of his recent repudiation of his former tenets, the latter was scarcely less desirous of showing that, under a gentle demeanor, he was capable of cherishing a strong purpose. Five years before, when his merits as a candidate for the tiara were under discussion at the conclave, it had been urged against Pole that, when at Viterbo, he had been wanting in the requisite severity towards obstinate heretics— and he had himself always claimed to have inclined to mercy when assisting at the conferences of the council of trent but he was especially anxious at this time to leave no occasion for a similar reproach in england and his discharge of his functions during the remainder of the reign cannot be regarded as lenient although in convocation as late as january fifteen fifty five he admonished the bishops to use gentleness in their endeavors towards the reclaiming of heretics. For the merciless severities which ensued, the violence of the more intolerant reformers also afforded a partial extenuation, and it is now generally admitted that the part played by Bonner was not that attributed to him by Fox, of a cruel bigot who exulted in sending his victims to the stake, the number of those put to death in his diocese of london was undoubtedly disproportionately large but this would seem to have been more the result of the strength of the reforming element in the capital and in essex than to the employment of exceptional rigour while the evidence also shows that he himself dealt patiently with many of the protestants and did his best to induce them to renounce what he conscientiously believed to be their errors in the course of 1555, events abroad brought about a further modification of the relations of England with the Holy See. In February, an embassy had been sent to Julius III to make known to him the unreserved submission of the English Parliament. The ambassadors proceeded leisurely on their journey, and while still on the way were met by the tidings of the pontiff's death 
which had taken place on March 23. Charles forthwith sent an urgent request to Pole to repair to Rome in order to support the imperial interests in the new election. The cardinal, however, sought to be excused on the ground that the negotiations for peace were even of yet greater importance for the welfare of Christendom. His friend, Cardinal Alessandro Farnese, hastened from Avignon to Rome in order to support his claims in the conclave. But Pole himself seemed, according to Michiel, without any personal ambition at this crisis. The efforts of France were forestalled by the election of Cardinal Corvini, but before another three weeks had elapsed, Marcellus II himself was no more. This second opportunity seemed both to Mary and to Gardiner one that should not be disregarded, and Pole's claims were now strongly urged. Even Noailles admitted that no election was more likely to bring peace to Christendom, nor could he conceive of any other pontiff who would hold the balance with such equal impartiality between France and the Empire. Again, however, the Italian party triumphed, and even Pole himself may have questioned the wisdom of his abstention when Gian Pietro Caraffa, now in his eightieth year, succeeded as Paul IV to the papal chair. The house of Caraffa was Neapolitan, and had long been on friendly terms with France, while it cherished a corresponding hereditary enmity towards Spain. Paul could remember Italy in the days of her freedom, and his hatred of the Spanish domination had been intensified by not unfrequent collisions with the imperial representatives in the Neapolitan territory, and not least by the strenuous efforts they had made to defeat his election to the archbishopric of Naples. The bestowal of Milan and the crown of Italy on Philip, on his betrothal to Mary, had still further roused Caraffa's ire. Paul, indeed, did not scruple to accuse Charles of dealing leniently with heretics in order to show his aversion from the Roman policy. Before the year 1555 closed, he had concluded a secret treaty with France, which had for its special object the expulsion of the imperialist forces from the Italian peninsula. Charles, when informed by the nuncio of the election, blandly observed that he could well remember when, himself a boy of fourteen, hearing the new pope sing mass at Brussels. Michiel, however, to whom Philip at Hampton Court communicated the intelligence, could perceive that neither the king himself nor those, quote, Spanish gentlemen with whom he found the opportunity of conversing at Richmond were pleased, and says plainly, quote, they by no means approve of this election, end quote. In the same letter, June 6, he informs the doge that, quote, Her Majesty expects and hopes during this week to comfort the realm by an auspicious delivery, end quote. Although he adds that this is earlier than the ladies of the bedchamber anticipate. On Hampton Court, whither, some two months before, Sir Henry Bedingfield had conducted the Princess Elizabeth, the main interest of the English nation now became concentrated, and probably no period in her whole life was marked by more torturing doubt and anxiety. Her days passed in almost complete solitude. Gardiner, 
the earl of arundel and other members of the council were her only visitors the object of their visits as she soon became painfully aware being to draw from her some unguarded expression which might be construed into an admission of her complicity in the insurrection their design however was baffled by her indignant and persistent denials and when early in july mary accorded her captive an interview elizabeth again and in yet stronger language asseverated her entire innocence a visit from the king addressing her with respectful demeanour and kindly words encouraged while it somewhat mystified her but before another ten days had passed away the sagacious princess could easily interpret the change of purpose which his bearing had then indicated it now became known that mary had been under a complete delusion and that there would probably be no offspring from the royal marriage elizabeth's supporters at once took heart again as they realized the change which had supervened in regard to her future prospects they appeared in london in high spirits and large numbers so comporting themselves indeed that the council in alarm ordered the more prominent among them to retire to their estates as suspected heretics and leagued with the rebels but elizabeth herself was set at liberty and sought again her former seclusion at ashridge and as mary slowly awoke from her fond dream of maternity philip freed from the obligation which had detained him at her side began to advert to continental politics and to plead that the affairs of the continent demanded his personal supervision abroad before however quitting his island kingdom he deemed it necessary to advise his consort with respect to the treatment of elizabeth during his absence advice which differed materially from that given by his father it was no longer suggested that political exigencies might call for the sacrifice of a sister's life on the contrary mary was now recommended to extend all possible indulgence to the princess and the changed conditions of elizabeth's existence became obvious even to the public at large nor did intelligent observers require to be reminded that the daughter of anne boleyn was the only barrier to the succession of mary stuart the betrothed of the french monarch to the throne of england but round the present occupant of that throne the clouds were gathering more darkly than before and mary's temper and health were visibly affected by the wanton imputations directed against both herself and philip among the spanish party not a little chagrined at the royal disillusionment there were those who represented the young king as the victim of a designing woman and who affected to believe that mary's pretended pregnancy was a mere device to detain her husband by her side the council on the other hand had to listen to allegations which asserted that the king despairing of a lineal succession was meditating a coup de main by bringing over large bodies of spanish troops and occupying the harbours and ports and thus realizing the long suspected design of the habsburg the reduction of england to a dependency of spain both charles and philip again became aware that with mary's vanished hopes a considerable advantage in their negotiations with france had also disappeared and the malicious exultation of noailles knew no bounds 
rarely in the annals of royalty in england had satire and ridicule been at once so rancorous and so unmerited the haughty habsburg acutely sensitive under a seemingly impassive exterior to all that affected his personal dignity determined to quit the country and in obedience to his father's behest to devote himself to the affairs of those vast possessions which he was soon to be called upon to rule on august twenty eighth fifteen fifty five philip sailed for the low countries the incidents which preceded his departure are described in detail by michiel before embarking the king summoned the lords of the council to the council chamber and there handed them a series of suggestions for the government of the realm during his absence together with a list of names of those whom he deemed most eligible for the conduct of affairs if we may credit the venetian envoy the judgment and ability displayed in this document excited the approval and admiration of all who perused it at greenwich where philip embarked he took leave of mary at the head of the staircase of their apartments the queen maintaining her self-possession until he was gone and then giving way to uncontrollable grief pole whom the king had designated as her chief counsellor was indeed now the only adviser to whom she could turn with any confidence and her sense of loneliness and desertion was intense the cardinal touched by her pitiable condition compiled a short prayer for her use during her husband's absence the departure of philip was however perfectly justified by the pressing state of affairs at the imperial court whither he had already received more than one urgent summons from his father charles's health was giving way and although only in his fifty-sixth year he was already contemplating retirement to our kingdoms of spain there quote, to pass the rest of our life in repose and tranquillity end quote. but before this could be it was imperative that he should make the necessary dispositions for the succession in his own imperial domains while he also aspired to arrange if possible for the regal succession in england although no reasonable hope of issue from his son's marriage could now be entertained the astute emperor would not abandon his project of securing the english crown to his own house without a final effort and he now proposed that the princess elizabeth should be betrothed to his nephew the archduke ferdinand but in return for the accession of territory and influence that would thus accrue to the austrian branch he insisted that philip should receive for italy the title of quote, vicar of the empire end quote, implying the delegation of the supreme imperial power the objections of ferdinand prevented the public execution of this stipulation which was however later secretly carried out for a time indeed it was currently reported that ferdinand's succession to the empire itself was in jeopardy a coolness arose between the two brothers and when on october twenty five fifteen fifty five charles made a formal surrender at brussels of his flemish provinces to his son neither the king of the romans nor his son maximilian appeared in the august assemblage the ceremony took place in the town hall of the capital where charles taking his seat on his throne with philip on his right hand and mary 
the late regent of the low countries on his left and surrounded by his nobles and ministers of state and the delegates of the provinces formally ceded to his son the quote, king of england and of naples end quote, the entire surrounding territories quote, the duchies marquisates principalities counties baronies lordships villages castles and fortresses therein together with all the royalties end quote. it can scarcely be deemed surprising if amid these new and vast responsibilities philip's insular kingdom and its lonely queen might seem at times forgotten or that charles whose design it had been to set out for spain as soon as possible found his departure unavoidably retarded until the year fifteen fifty six was far advanced but in the february of that year the truce of vaucelles ended for a time the hostilities with france henry thereby retaining possession of the entire territories of the duke of savoy with his habitual want of good faith however the french monarch did not scruple whenever an opportunity presented itself still secretly to foment insurrection against both philip and mary in their respective domains at length on august nine the emperor finally quitted brussels and embarked a month later for spain his departure was pathetically deprecated and deplored by mary who now guided almost solely by pole had during the previous year been directing her main efforts to the suppression of heresy within her realm the entire number of those who thus suffered during her reign was less than four hundred a number which appears small when contrasted with the thousands who had already died in a like cause in provence or who were destined to do so in the low countries but the social eminence high character and personal popularity of not a few of the english martyrs unalloyed as in many cases these qualities were with political disaffection served to invest their fate with a peculiar interest in the eyes of their fellow-countrymen an interest which fox's book of martyrs chained to the eagle brass of many a parish church did much to perpetuate the prominence thus secured for that partial record was the means of winning for its contents an amount of attention from later historical writers greatly in excess of its actual merits it needed however neither misrepresentation nor partisanship to gain for many of the martyrs of mary's reign the deep sympathy of observant contemporaries john rogers once a prebendary of st paul's and lecturer on divinity followed to the stake by his wife and children nerved by their exhortations and expiring unmoved and unshaken before their gaze the reasonable defence and legally strong position of robert ferrar the former bishop of st david's the transparent honesty and scholarly acumen of john bradford the fine qualities and youthful heroism of thomas hawkes whom bonner himself would gladly have screened all commanded sympathy and were entirely dissociated from that political discontent which undoubtedly called for prompt and stern repression with regard however to the three distinguished martyrs who died at oxford there was a wide difference in proportion to their eminence 
had been their offence as contumacious offenders. Cranmer, as signatory to the late king's will, and thereby participant in the diversion of the succession, as well as in the actual plot on behalf of the Lady Jane, had two years before been condemned to suffer the penalty of high treason. And although the extreme penalty had been remitted, the sentence had carried with it the forfeiture of his archbishopric, and he remained a prisoner in the tower. His captivity was shared by Ridley and Latimer, of whom the former had been scarcely less conspicuous in his support of the Lady Jane, while the latter, as far back as the reign of Henry, had been for a time a prisoner within the same walls, denounced as active in, quote, moving tumults in the state, end quote. Had it not been for Wyatt's conspiracy, they would probably have regained their freedom. But with that experience, Mary came to the conclusion that her past clemency had been a mistaken policy, and, in conjunction with Pole, she now resolved to show no leniency to those convicted of heretical doctrine. Such a mode of procedure was convenient when compared with prosecutions for treason, as at once less costly, more expeditious, and allowing the use of evidence afforded by the culprits themselves. It was also certain that not one of the three distinguished ecclesiastics would have ventured to deny that heresy was an offense which called for the severest penalties. Cranmer, in conjunction with his chaplain Ridley, had pronounced sentence in 1549 on Joan Bosher, and in doing so had been perfectly aware that her condemnation involved her death by burning at the hands of the secular power. Ridley, in his notable sermon at Paul's Cross in 1553, had denounced Mary as a usurper, not on the ground of the illegality of her succession, but as one altogether intractable in matters of, quote, truth, faith, and obedience, end quote. Latimer, when Bishop of Worcester, had expressed his unreserved approval of a sentence whereby a number of Anabaptists perished at the stake and on the occasion when friar forrest met with a like fate for denying the supremacy claimed by henry the eighth had preached against the papal claims to spiritual jurisdiction in england accordingly just as the reformers had resorted to political rebellion in order to bring about the downfall of theological error so the crown now sought to punish political disaffection on the grounds of religious heresy the power which invoked the law could also enforce its own definition of the offense. The reformers had, however, frequently complained that they suffered persecution as heretics, while the exact nature of their offense remained itself undefined. It was accordingly resolved that no doubt should be suffered to remain in the cases of Latimer, Cranmer, and Ridley. Out of their own mouths should their condemnation be justified. Such was the design with which, in March 1554, they were brought from the Tower to Oxford, and there called upon to defend, in a formal disputation, their doctrine respecting the Mass. Nor would it have been easy to take exception to the right of these three eminent men to represent the tenets of their party. The first had been Bishop of Worcester in the reign of Henry, the second had filled the see of Canterbury for more than twenty years. The third had been Bishop of London, 
and in that capacity had assisted at the deprivation of bonner his predecessor and now his successor and also at that of gardiner all three again had filled positions of importance in their university of cambridge and were presumed to be masters of dialectical disputation just as their opponents who were eleven in number had been selected from the two universities latimer however was now in his seventieth year and it was no reflection on his courage that he declined an ordeal in which quickness of apprehension and a ready memory were essentials the disputation was however vigorously maintained by cranmer and ridley in conflict with their numerous antagonists but they did so only to be pronounced defeated and after proceedings which extended over six days they were recommitted to bocardo as the common jail was designated in allusion to a logical position from which a disputant finds it impossible to extricate himself the condemnation involved the assumption that doctrines of faith and practice were amenable to the decisions of casuistry rather than to the teaching of scripture and was therefore contrary to the principles of the more advanced reformers the captives succeeded in corresponding with each other and coming to an understanding with respect to a declaration of their distinctive tenets may fifteen fifty four among other leading divines then suffering imprisonment were three of the bishops created in edward's reign john hooper of exeter robert ferrar of st david's and miles coverdale of exeter and well-known reformers such as roland taylor john philpot john bradford and edward crome but none of these were comparable for learning dialectical capacity and intellectual acumen with the three bishops whose doctrines already stood condemned and when the other reformers learnt that they were to be called upon to face a similar ordeal they anticipated such a requirement by an intimation that they would not consent to engage in a formal disputation but were willing to set forth their views and defend them in writing they also explained what their leading tenets were the acceptance of the doctrine of justification by faith alone the repudiation of the doctrines of purgatory and transubstantiation together with the adoration of the host clerical celibacy and latin services they however professed unqualified loyalty to the queen and deprecated all conspiracies against her authority with respect to this manifesto no action appears to have been taken but the petitioners were still detained in captivity and before the year closed parliament enacted afresh the ancient laws against lollardism including archbishop arundel's notorious statute de heretico comburendo all of which had been abolished by somerset conscious of the net which was being drawn around them and that their heresy was becoming a question of life or death the captives instructed john bradford to draw up in their name a new declaration couched however in far from conciliatory terms as against the newly enacted laws of richard the second and his two successors they appealed to parliament to re-enact the quote, many godly laws touching the true religion of christ end quote, set forth in the two preceding reigns quote, by two most noble kings end quote, laws which they affirmed 
had been passed only after much discussion among the doctors of Cambridge and Oxford, and with the cordial and full assent of the whole realm. Not a single parish in England, they declared, was desirous of a return to, quote, the Romish superstitions and vain service, end quote, which had recently been introduced. They maintained that the homilies and services adopted during King Edward's reign were truly Catholic, and were ready to prove them so, or, if they failed in this, to give their bodies to be burned as the Lollard laws prescribed. The Parliament, to which the petitioners appealed, gave no response to their supplication, although a spirit of reaction is distinctly discernible in the Commons during this session. That body had shown a marked disinclination to reenact the laws against Lollardism, and although it had consented to annul the ecclesiastical legislation of Henry VIII, so far as this affected the papal prerogatives and authority, it had confirmed institutions and individuals alike in their possession of the property which Henry had wrested from the church. In the event, again, of the royal marriage being blessed with offspring, Philip had been appointed regent, should he survive his consort. But his regency was to last only so long as the minority of their child, and was to carry with it the obligation to reside in England. And finally, it was decided that the Articles of the Marriage Treaty were to continue in full force, while the proposal that Philip himself should be honored with a solemn coronation was rejected. Altogether, there had been much to remind the king of certain essential differences between monarchy in Spain and monarchy in England. And when, on January 16, 1555, the dissolution of Parliament took place, no eye could note, with malicious satisfaction, the smallness of the retinue which accompanied the sovereigns to the House of Lords, and the dissatisfaction shown in the House itself by both Mary and her consort. After a painful and ignominious imprisonment extending over more than two years, the three bishops found themselves in September 1555 again seated in the Divinity School at Oxford, awaiting their trial for the heresies of which they had already been convicted. The conduct of the proceedings was entrusted to a commission appointed by the legate, and Cranmer, the first who was formally summoned, stood with his head covered, pleading at the outset that he had sworn never to admit the authority of the Bishop of Rome in England, and at the same time refusing to recognize that of the Bishop of Gloucester, who had been appointed to preside over the proceedings as his lawful judge. Fresh charges, among them his marriage, were now brought against him. He was then cited as a metropolitan to appear within eighty days in Rome to answer all accusations, and was finally consigned again to Boccardo. Ridley and Latimer were to be more summarily dealt with. Pole, indeed, sent Fray de Soto, who had been appointed to fill the Hebrew chair at Oxford in the absence of Richard Brune, to argue with them. But it was of no avail, and both perished at the same stake, quote, to light, end quote, as Latimer himself there expressed it, quote, such a candle in England as should never be put out, end quote. Cranmer, who from a tower above his prison chamber witnessed their dying agonies, showed less resolution, and when Fray de Garcia, 
the newly appointed Regius Professor of Divinity, was sent to ply him with further arguments, he wavered and admitted that even the papal supremacy, now that it had been recognized by king, queen, and parliament, appeared to him in a new light. He was at last induced to sign a recantation, declaratory of his submission to the pope as supreme head of the Catholic Church, and to the reigning sovereigns of his country and their laws. His formal degradation, however, which took place on February 14, opened his eyes to the fact that he had no mercy to look for at the hands of the papal delegates. And as his crozier was wrested from his grasp, and the mock vestments which symbolized his whole ecclesiastical career were successively removed from his person, and the pallium taken away, he resisted forcibly, at the same time producing from his sleeve a document in which he formally appealed from Paul the Fourth to the next general council. Prior to this ceremony, he had for a few weeks been consigned to the care of the dean of Christ Church, and had lived in the enjoyment of every comfort. But he was now once more consigned to Bocardo. There the terror of death came back, and he was induced to transcribe and sign other recantations. Eventually, however, in the Church of St. Mary, on the day appointed for his execution, when a full and complete declaration of his penitence, which should edify the religious world, was expected, he astonished his audience by a complete disavowal of all his previous recantations, which were no less than six in number. And when he was led forth to die, his vacillation in the prison was forgotten in his heroism at the stake. Suffering ostensibly as a heretic, Cranmer really expiated by his death the share which he had taken in procuring Henry's first divorce. End of section 56. Recording by Linda Johnson.